coming up on this week's podcast. We are being transformed. We're not transforming ourselves. God is doing the work in us. He's transforming us. His goal is for us to become like Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in Romans, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So God had in mind all along for us to go through that conformity and become like Jesus Christ. Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Julie Coleman with today's message. Uh, Last week, uh, we talked about King David and the terrible sin that he committed. Actually, it was a series of sins that he committed uh, during his reign. Uh, And I'll just go over briefly, for those of you who weren't here last week, what we covered, um, just to kind of catch you up to date, because this is a two-part series, and I'll be uh, finishing up on Psalm 51 today. Uh, David's story started with adultery. He had an affair with a uh, lady who was known to him. He was, she was the granddaughter of his, one of his chief counselors. She was the wife of his, one of his 37 mighty men. And um, he saw her from afar off on a rooftop and had her brought to him and slept with her and got her pregnant. Um, and if that wasn't bad enough, her husband, of course, was off at war at the time. And so David wanted to cover up his his uh, mistake, as Carlene would call it, <laughs> but his sin. And, he, and so he had her husband brought back from the field and, and, uh, and uh, under false pretenses and got him to go home and planned on him sleeping with his wife. But Uriah was the kind of guy who just was very loyal and, you know, not, not if my men are out in the tents, will I sleep with my wife? And so he didn't and uh, didn't cooperate too much with David. So David ended up having to have Uriah go and... Um, go back to the front, and he arranged, basically, for his murder. He had uh, the captain of the guard put Uriah out in front where the fighting was fiercest and then withdraw all the men without telling him, and he was defenseless and was killed. So David thought he had gotten away with it. After Bathsheba's mourning period was over, he took her into the palace as his wife, and she bore him a little boy. And so it looked like things were pretty peachy at that point for David, but they weren't because, of course, God had seen his sin. And God was, loved David too much to let him wallow in it for too much longer. About a year had gone by since the sin had, had been committed, the original sin. And so David, uh, Nathan, the prophet, was sent by God to David and confronted David about the sin. And David's immediate response was, I've sinned against the Lord. Total repentance right away. And Nathan's response to David was, the Lord has forgiven you which was very good news for David, but it didn't quite sink into here. Maybe it got up here, but he didn't hear it in his heart. Because after Nathan left, David composed Psalm 51. Steve, I'm kind of patiently hoping that you're going to come and set up my... my (laughs) He promised. (laughs) But I'm running out of things to say until it gets going. (laughs) There it is. Beautiful. Thank you, honey. Okay. And so David composed Psalm 51. I know Kateri read a part of it this morning. I want to go ahead and read it again 
Uh, so you'll have it in front of you as, as I'm talking. And you feel free to turn to it in your Bibles as well. Um, and you'll notice it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David. And then it tells when David wrote it. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So now remember, keep in mind, David's already been told you're forgiven. And this is what he wrote. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Which is kind of telling, isn't it? He thought he had hidden, but he knew. He was always before him, was always on his mind. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's just pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this psalm that David wrote. Thank you, Lord, for putting so many characters in the Bible who were very faulty. (laughs) It gives us hope in our own faultiness. And in the way that we see that you dealt with them, we can have hope in the way that you will deal with us. Uh, We just ask that your Holy Spirit would give us spiritual eyes to understand the words of this passage and help us to glean something from it that will be not just head knowledge, but will reach right to our heart and change the way that we think and act and impact this for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so David basically asks for two things in this psalm. And the first one is that he asks to be forgiven for his offense. And that's what we talked about last, um, last week when, when I spoke. Uh, he actually asked for three kinds of cleansing. Three, three different kinds of cleansing. The first was a judicial, judicial cleansing, sorry. And um, that is that, you know, the record is expunged, wiped clean. Um, and that's what he asked for. He also asked for a thorough washing. And the Hebrew word used in that thorough washing is the, the laundry that women would take down to the river and stomp on it to get the stains out. And that was the word for that. And the third thing David asked for in terms of getting clean is to be ceremonially clean. Uh, that cleanse with hyssop, that was a ceremonial thing, and it made him, um, it would make him fit for service once again, for God's service, and to worship at the temple. So he asked for those three things, forgiveness. Well, this week we're going to look at the other thing that he asked for in the psalm. Besides being forgiven, 
He asked really to have his relationship with God restored to the glory that it once was. Now, before the big sin, David had an unbelievable relationship with God. And it's just right through his whole life story. It's really amazing. We first meet David in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And David has been chosen by God to be the next king. Saul had sinned and disobeyed God and did not repent in his heart. And so God had told Saul, you're out, David's in. (laughs) And so he sent Samuel to anoint this new king, David, who was just a young guy at the time. And, um, and this is what the Bible says there. He tells Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now, we all are very used to having the Holy Spirit being present in our lives. God uh, put him there as a seal, a guarantee of our future inheritance, it tells us in Ephesians 1. But this was something that was unusual, that the Spirit of God would come and rest on somebody. And that's what happened with David. So he had this intimate relationship with God right from the beginning. Um, He had great confidence in the Lord, probably because of God's Spirit that was resting on him. And one thing that uh, shows that is how he responded to um, Goliath when Goliath was out in the battlefield, and you're all familiar with that story. But what's really interesting to note in that story is just how confident David was in a victory with Goliath. But he wasn't confident in himself or his battle experience. He was confident in the Lord, and the Lord was going to bring Goliath down. So you see that. Another thing that we see, um, that David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him, and all Israel and Judah loved him. He enjoyed great blessings from God because of his heart for God. And um, advice and counsel he asked for all the time. He was going back and forth with the Lord. Here's an example. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David inquired of the Lord. So there's this back and forth conversation that's going on all the time while David was in his reign. So it was truly an intimate relationship. And lastly, the Lord helped David wherever he went, which kind of sizes up that whole relationship from the beginning. So David had enjoyed that kind of intimacy with God all along. And now that sin had gotten in the way. And David wanted his relationship restored. He wanted it back. So he cried out not just for forgiveness. He cried out for the relationship. So he asked for restoration really in four different areas. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. You will find on the back of your um, program that you received at the door when you walked in, there's an outline. It's got fill in the blanks in case you're interested in taking some notes. Um, But these are the four things that David asked for in that restoration process. Because once we approach God with a humble heart and we come clean about our sin, God will restore the relationship. And these are the four ways he's going to restore us. The first is he is going to release us from guilt. David prayed for that. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. So he was very conscious of his guilt. My sin is ever before me, he says. He knows he needs cleansing. The guilt is just overwhelming him. And he knows while he feels that guilty, he cannot have that kind of intimate relationship with God. But the thing is, We could pray that prayer too, release me from guilt, but we've already been released. (laughs) If you believe in Christ as your Savior, that blood that he shed on the cross washes us clean 
of any guilt, of any sin, were covered. Psalm 103 tells us as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sins from us. But how do we get rid of the guilt that we feel ourselves? Some of you are mothers out here. You know what guilty is if you're a mother. Because we're guilty 100% of the time. We never do things quite well enough. Um, We never seem to quite meet our kids' needs. And it's just, it's a hard thing. My daughter was in fourth grade, and and she's not here. I'm glad I can tell you this story. She, (laughs) she, she, um, I was teaching at Christian school, at Naples Area Christian School, in fifth grade. She was in fourth grade at the time. And Doris, her teacher, came into the room. It's a faculty lounge one day at lunchtime. And sat down and said, Julie, I think you need to know what your daughter just gave as a prayer request this morning. I knew it couldn't be good. So I said, okay, tell me. Now, of course, the whole faculty around the table is all ears. They all want to know. So she said, she said, would you please pray that my mom would make us a home-cooked meal? It's been so long. <laughs> and, of course, the whole faculty burst out laughing because we were all in the same boat. We were all mothers with children and trying to teach school and keep a home running and all that kind of stuff. So I sat up in my chair and I said, okay, that's it. Today I'm going to be a good mom. I'm going to go home. I'm going to make meatloaf and potatoes and string beans and I'm a comfort meal and, and I'm just going to be a good mother now for the rest of my life. And I was just, you know, determined. See, Steve had been away all week at a conference out in California. And so while he wasn't there, I was solo parenting with my four kids. And, you know, cooking dinner was the least of my worries. So we were stopping by McDonald's every night on our way home you know, to get that part over with so I could help them with their homework and give them baths and get their uniforms ready and go to bed. So anyway, I mean, I don't mean to be excusing myself, but that's really the reason why <laughs> she wasn't getting home-cooked meal. Well, anyway, so we, we had a faculty meeting that evening, and, and, um, and I attended it, and we were choosing a reading language arts curriculum. It was a huge involved process. It took forever. We were just there for the longest time. We didn't get out of the meeting till like 5 o'clock, and so I dragged myself down the hall, and I packed up all my papers, and I was walking by Doris's room. I stuck my head in the door, and I said, Doris, keep praying. We're going to Wendy's. <laughs> guilty. All the time. Feel guilty, 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 because we know we're not doing it um, enough. So the first thing we really need to understand, if we're going to get past guilt, and I'm sure everyone experiences on some level or another, is that we have to understand something. We have to know the difference between conviction and guilt because they're two very different things. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit is prompting us to repentance. When we're in sin and we get that guilty feeling, that's a good thing. It's like putting your hand on a hot stove and your nerve endings tell you, take your hand off, right? It's, it's, it's giving you that red flag, that warning Get, stop. Stop what you're doing. This is bad. That's a good thing. That's conviction. But there's another kind of guilt. And that's the kind of guilt that Satan throws at us when we've confessed the sin and we've repented from the sin, but we still feel guilty. That kind of guilty is a useless emotion and it's destructive and it keeps us from being intimate with God. So know the difference between those two. The second thing we need to know, if we're going to be released from our guilt, is we need to understand God's grace. Because God loved us, and get this straight, before we even had a single thought of him. While we were still his enemies, the Bible says, God loved us and provided for us. 
And so it never, ever had to do with anything that we did. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our acceptance to God has always been reliant on the cross. And that continues even after we're saved and have been forgiven from our sin. It has nothing to do with our performance. That grace that God gave us continues to be our source of life on a day-to-day basis. And we have to constantly draw from that grace while we're doing things. And we're not trying to win God's approval. Jesus put it very plainly to the crowds. He said, come to me, all you are heavy laden, burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is right, light. We rest in the work of Christ, not on our own merits. It happened at our salvation, and it continues today. So the first way, then, that God restores our relationship is releasing us from guilt. The second way is that he brings us into a new intimacy with him, a new intimacy When God has taken us through those hard times, those bad moments, the times, and it has remained faithful no matter what, we really learn to trust him on a much greater level than we did before. And how we get that is because he gives us a deeper spiritual understanding in a couple of different ways. The first is, oh, and this is what David wrote. Sorry, I forgot about that part. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Here, David in Psalm 51 is asking for that deep knowledge of God that goes right down to the center of his core. That's what he's asking for. The first thing we can, that God teaches us as we go through this restoration process and gives us spiritual insight, the first thing is that we learn about his goodness. And um, Justin had some perfect songs picked out for this morning. Um, you are good and your mercy endures forever. We have to learn about that. Because doubting God's goodness, I believe, is pretty much the root of all of our sins. I think it began with Eve. Eve was in the garden, and Satan was questioning whether or not she should be allowed to eat in the tree. Why? Well, he's only doing that. He's giving you that rule so that you won't become like him. See how Satan's weaving that little thought into Eve's mind. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. And I think sometimes in our hearts, we do not believe God has our best interest in mind. We think of him more like a killjoy. And so instead of trusting what we know he would want for us, we go ahead and go off on our own. And so we do that. And we take our pleasure and, and try to get satisfaction in that sin. And sometimes the sin is really worth it for a few minutes. And then what happens is it's like a mouthful of cotton candy. You get that first initial sweet blast, and then it's gone. There's nothing left except for the destruction that we've caused with our cavalier actions. Jesus knew his disciples would be tempted to question God's goodness, and this is what he told them. He said, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give what's good to those who ask him? He wanted the disciples to know God is good all the time. We say that. Do we really believe it? Psalm 149 is one of my favorite verses. The Lord takes pleasure 
in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. After we experience that destruction that happens because of our sin, the guilt and the pain, we really do understand God's goodness so much better. We stop thinking of him as that killjoy, like I said, but rather as a protector. And all of those things in the Bible, all those things that we should do and, and don't do, it's more than a bunch of rules. Rather, it's guidelines to give us the best life possible. And so we start to understand God just a little bit better when we learn about his goodness. We also experience his grace. Grace is, by definition, undeserved merit or favor. There's nothing you can do to earn grace because it's undeserved. (laughs) And yet, sometimes we think that we need to earn that grace. Um, When we first experienced the grace of God, when we first believed in Jesus Christ, we understood that release of guilt and, and the forgiveness that we had. But sometimes as we try to live for Christ, we think now we need to deserve the grace. It's always undeserved. It's always undeserved merit. Um, it never, God's love never relied on us, and it never will rely on us. It's about his grace. We're helpless to win his approval. So that's the second thing. And, and even Paul had to learn that. God put, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So the very sin that we commit helps us to understand his grace even better. A third way that God deepens our spiritual understanding is that we learn to find our satisfaction in him. We go from superficial to satisfied. David remembered when the days were enough. Remember Psalm 23? Um, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. David knew what it was to be satisfied in God. Um, There was another time in, uh, in the book of Isaiah where the people were not getting their satisfaction for God. As a matter of fact, they were doing all the right things. They were, you know, making their sacrifices and celebrating the holidays, going through the motions, fasting, praying, but their hearts had not turned toward God, and God called them on it. And he told them, you need to totally repent and turn to me. And this is what he promised them. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. And the Lord will, and here's the blessings, continually guide you, and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and a spring of water whose waters do not fail. A watered garden. Think of a garden that's gotten plenty of water over the summer, how it's flourishing and green and lush and bearing great fruit. Think about a spring. There was a spring up in New Hampshire near my camp. We used to take old milk jugs and fill up with water. Beautiful, fresh, cold, cold, cold water coming from inside the mountain somewhere. And it never, ever stopped running. It was always there. I think it froze over probably in the wintertime. I was never up there to see. But that spring just abundantly refilled and refilled. That's what God's promising those who approach him to be um, restored. So he releases us from the overwhelming burden of guilt. He draws us into new intimacy with him as he teaches us about his goodness and his grace and finds satisfaction in him. Now, a third thing God does in our relationship is that he will change us to his image, to his image. Second Corinthians, and this is what he asked, David asked, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That whole idea, create in me a pure heart, that's regeneration he's talking about. 
Very, very unusual in the Old Testament for regeneration to even be mentioned. And here's David making that one of his requests of God. He wants to be changed. 2 Corinthians tells us that's happening. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed, present active tense. It's an ongoing, continual process. Being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed. We're not transforming ourselves. God is doing the work in us. He's transforming us. His goal is for us to become like Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in Romans, it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined, predestined to what? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. So God had in mind all along for us to go through that confirmation, uh, conformity and become like Jesus Christ. So when we approach God with a sincere heart and ask for restoration, he transforms us. Paul commanded the Romans to do it. Present your bodies to be a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That idea of transformation conveys this newness, this fresh newness in all that we do and think. It's a radical reversal of what we think and what our values are and our motives and our methods. It really involves a complete tearing down of who we were and a rebuilding of who we're to become. Now, sometimes that tearing down process, not so comfortable. <laughs> we had a house a couple of doors down from us. Um, it's all fixed up now. But when we first moved into our neighborhood 11 years ago, this house was falling apart. The soffit was hanging down. The yard was all overgrown. I wasn't even sure anybody was even living there. Um, and then one day... Uh, for sale sign went up in front, and I thought, oh, well, somebody owns it. <laughs> and then a couple days later, the for sale sign came down, and about a week later, a big, um, what do you call those big f- the trailers that they bring in to throw garbage into? I can't think of the name of them. You know what I'm talking about. Dumpster, thank you. <laughs> dumpster showed up, and dumpster after dumpster came, and whoever had taken the house was totally gutting the whole thing out. So I talked to my next-door neighbor who knows everything about everything in our neighborhood. And I said, what's going on over there? (laughs) And he said, oh, he said, the woman that lived there was very, very old. And apparently raccoons had come and nested in her attic and had been there for years. And there was quite a family of them there. And the urine and the feces had dripped down into the house and had stained the whole top floor. He said you couldn't even get within a few feet of the place, but even when the doors were still closed, without gagging on the smell. And this poor woman was living like that. I felt terrible. I had no idea. Well, what they had to do to make that house livable, somebody came in, and those were when everybody was big into the fad of um, buying a house up and fixing it and then you know flipping it and then selling it. And this guy came in, his contractor, and he ripped out the whole house. The raccoons had chewed wires. Uh, you know, everything had to be gone because the smell was so bad. And he gutted it right down to the studs and then rebuilt the house. And then a family bought it for a pretty penny, I might add, (laughs) and moved in, and they've been fine ever since. Well, sometimes God has to do that with us. Sometimes things are so bad, he's got to gut us out before he can rebuild us into the image of Christ. And a lot of that is the times when that sin that we have done becomes exposed to the light. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. We're normally embarrassed because usually when something comes out to the light, it's because 
somebody found out. <laughs> and so we end up in this painful, hard experience. But it's worth it. Because in the end, he has rebuilt us, and now we are in the image of Jesus Christ. And where once sin dwelt will now be inhabited by godliness. And where once foolishness reigned will now be taken over with wisdom. And a life that was made helpless from being just totally under our sinful nature's control will be transformed and now be put under the control of the Holy Spirit. So it might not be comfortable, but it is worth it. So he transforms us. So once we approach him with a humble heart, he'll restore us by releasing us from guilt, bringing us into new intimacy with him, changing us into his image, and the very last thing that David asked about was energized, being energized for service. Energized for service. When you've experienced the grace and forgiveness of God, you can't stay the same. You can't stay the same. It changes everything. So David asked for that. He said, My tongue will sing of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. David was already planning ahead how he was going to serve God once he was restored because he knew God would restore him to service. Because when we're being in that relationship with God and we have been forgiven, what we experience with the love and grace of God, that's life-altering. Paul said, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again what we know to be true compels a response you know we see a great example of that in the book of acts um well earlier in the gospels when jesus was arrested the night he was arrested his disciples were all with him they were all there But nobody showed up to give a testimony in the Sanhedrin when he was being tried for his life. What happened to the disciples? They faded away into the night, took off, ran, got out of there because now they knew that being associated with Christ was a life-threatening thing to be. So they went and hid in the upper room. Didn't come out. We only have a couple of of, uh, mentions in the Bible of any disciples even being near the cross. I mean, the guys who buried him weren't even his disciples. It was uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that buried him. So where were the disciples? They were hiding. They were scared. But those same cowardly disciples, 40 days later, spill out into the streets in Jerusalem and boldly preach the gospel. Peter stands in front of the high priest. Remember, Peter's the one who denied Christ, scared to say he even knew him. He's talking to the high priest and telling him exactly who Christ was in the resurrection. So what made that change? What brought those men from being these scared men hiding in a room, not even want to answer the door, to these men out in the streets? They knew the truth. They'd seen the resurrected Lord. They knew the truth. And that compelled them to get out and do that. Well, what we experience when we're reconciled to God compels that same kind of response. We owe him everything. And the love that he's shown us and the forgiveness he's lavished on us gives us a desire to live for him no matter what the cost. So in conclusion, experiencing the grace of God in that process of reconciliation puts us in a prime position to know God better than we ever have before. Sorry, it's a little fuzzy. I couldn't find my original file. I had to steal it off Facebook. 
But there's me and my husband, Steve. He's a good-looking guy, isn't he? We've been married 30 years. And I can tell you, at the beginning of our relationship, when we were first dating, I was on my very best behavior because this guy was a catch. (laughs) And I made sure that he wasn't going to see any of my dark side. And so whenever we were together, I was goodness and light and and, um, very spiritual, of course. And... (laughs) But, you know, you can only keep that up for so long before people get to see the other part of you. And the more time we spent together, the more he was able to see. And, of course, after we were married, the gig was up. (laughs) Steve has seen me in my worst, worst of times. He's seen the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, He's seen me on my bad hair days. He's seen me with no makeup. Um, He's seen me when I've been nasty to people. Uh, You know, he's seen the whole thing, the whole nine yards. But that's what an intimate relationship is all about. You're not on intimate terms with anybody if they don't know all of you. And so that, that, that whole process of bringing even the ugly out into the light is a part of becoming intimate with the person that you love. And that love means so much more when you know they love you, not because of the good that they see, but in spite of the bad that's there also. And that's what this whole sin thing and the confession and the restoration does for us with God. He already knows us intimately, but we need to know how intimately he knows us, if that makes sense. And so when we confess those things and we bring our sin before him, he mercifully forgives us and he demonstrates to us that even though that thing exists and you're admitting it, he loves you anyway. and loves you because, not of what you've done, but because of the blood of Christ. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching, focused on the Jewish roots of the faith, and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. New Hope Chapel.